Welcome to the next message from Encounter Church. For more information about our church, visit us online at EncounterPGH.com. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the message. Good morning, folks. I hope you're all doing well. Today we are uh, finishing our series that we have been in throughout this month called When God Doesn't Make Sense. Um, This has been a challenging series and one that I believe is foundational for us as a church. It hasn't always been the most uplifting or kind of easy sort of steps, one, two, three. But uh, last week we talked about Lazarus and when God seemed late. And we explored the story uh, that we see of Jesus' close friend Lazarus and how he had actually had died and, and, and uh, his friends didn't understand why he didn't show up yet. And now in that story, in the end, uh, Jesus does show up and, and everything is made right in the end. And we see that, that God is glorified through it. And, um, but today we're going to be talking about uh, a topic that's a little bit more difficult. Um, when God doesn't appear as though he shows up or when God appears to be uncooperative. And this is a little bit more of a difficult topic for us because it's one that is challenging for us. You know, it's, it's uh, as a pastor or as Christians, or, uh, it can be challenging for us to, to look out and to see that most oftentimes when we hear sermons, um, we usually preach from the faith side of things. You know, guys, no matter how hard it gets, just keep praying and believing for the miracle, and then, and then we, we kind of stop there, right? But what about the moments where it appears as though God's answer might be what we don't want to hear, or where it, appear, it appears as though God might be operating in an uncooperative way? What do we do then? I want to tell you two quick stories to kind of frame our discussion today. The first one is this. I remember when we were living, uh, this is several years ago, my wife and I, my family were living in Maryland at the time, and I had a, um, a, a rash of speeding tickets that took place for me. I remember they had these speed trap cameras that are, thank God, are illegal in Pennsylvania, but in Maryland they are not. And so I would get them, and every, it seemed like every week, I was getting one of those speeding tickets in the mail, uh, and some of them came with points, some of them did not. And there was just this season of time where I felt like I was getting speeding tickets constantly, and I was worried that I was going to get close to possibly losing my license at one point. So I'm driving along, I can't remember where I was going at the time, and all of a sudden I see this lovely multicolor hue, you know, shade in my in my, uh, the cabin of my car, which only means one thing. I have to look in my rearview mirror, and what do I see? The flashing lights of a police officer behind me. So I stop and pull over to the side, and I'm begging. I'm saying, oh, God, please, I can't get a speeding ticket. If I get a ticket, I don't know what's going to happen. I, I can't afford this right now. Um, uh, God, I, I, might get, I might get points, you know, that could potentially take my license away. That would be difficult for me with my job. Like, I'm just sitting there in the car, and I'm begging, God, please, 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 I can't handle this right now. So the police officer walks up to the side of the car, pulls, you know, the window down, and do you know why I stopped you? And in my head, I'm thinking, yes, I absolutely know why why you stopped me. I was probably going about 50 miles beyond the limit of uh, the speed that I was supposed to. I didn't say this. I said, well, officer, I'm not really sure. (laughs) So he, he, uh, you know, asked for license, registration, the whole thing. And I said, officer, listen, I'm I don't know what else I can say. I'm just asking, you know, is there any, any way I can just have mercy here? I, I, I'm, I, I know I was speeding, you know, the whole thing. And he says, you know, 
you know, it goes back to his car, does the thing in that waiting period. If any of you have ever gotten a speeding ticket, you know what I'm talking about, that waiting period. You don't know what he's doing. Is he going to arrest me? Is he going to find something in my history or my past that I don't even know about? I'm going to go end up in jail. I'm never going to see my kids again. Like, this is what I'm thinking, right? He comes back over, and he says to me, sir, I decided to give you a warning. And I, you would have thought that the heavens had parted. You know, and that Jesus Christ himself had gotten into the passenger seat of my car in that moment. I was so happy. I, I was so thankful. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I, I'm so thankful. You know, and I went home and I remember telling my wife about the situation and telling her, I will never speed again. I promise you this whole thing. I was so excited. I was so thankful that God answered my prayer. A couple years ago here at the church, uh, many of you might remember our friend Faith Dinkfeld. Um, when we first started the church, you know, we were reading at Arsenal Middle School, and we were in the auditorium. I remember Faith, uh, every Sunday, would come into church, and she would be sitting down with her husband, Rob, at the time, and, and she had such a beautiful heart, such a smile on her face. She was such a wonderful lady, but she was also battling cancer, multiple forms of cancer. And I remember being her pastor, a young pastor, for the first time ever, a couple months into planting our church, and just thinking, God, what a challenge to be given as soon as I took over our first church, or you know, began as a lead pastor for the first time in my life. And I just remember uh, speaking faith into her life. I remember, it's her name, and I remember speaking into her life to, to not give up and to believe in faith and to believe in miracles. And I remember our church would rally around faith and we would pray for her that her cancer would be eliminated, that Jesus, in Jesus' name, right, would, that her cancer would go away. I remember praying in life groups. She would come and I remember us gathering around her as a group and putting our hands on her shoulder and praying and encouraging her. I remember visiting her in the hospital and telling her faith, Jesus loves you, don't give up, right? I remember this, but I also remember sitting in the hospital room the moments, the moments before she passed away. I remember holding her hand. I remember reading the Psalms to her. She told me, I remember her telling me how afraid she was and how she didn't know what to feel. And I just remember walking through with her, the scriptures of David in the, in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, and declaring how, she, how, God, how he trusted God in, in the times of uncertainty. And I remember her feeling, thanking me for those moments. And I remember, despite our prayers, her passing away, even though we believed that God could heal her. And here's the trouble that I have, and that I think so many of us have. Why would God answer a prayer that is so insignificant, right? Like, why would God answer my small, feeble prayer to get me out of a speeding ticket, but he won't answer a prayer of something that it seems so, so much more important, right? This is the hard questions of faith. Why would God do something like that? Maybe you find yourself in a similar spot in your life. Maybe you're praying for God to heal you in some, of some physical ailment that you are suffering from. Maybe you're praying for God to restore a relationship, maybe a marriage or a relationship with a friend or a loved one, a family member or a child. Maybe your job has gotten out of control and you're praying for God to, to give you a new job or you're praying for God to give you a job and you don't have one. Your finances maybe are in horrible situation. Maybe you live in chronic pain. Maybe you're trying to conceive and trying to have a baby. I don't know what it might be for you, but you've been praying and you're believing. It's not a problem of faith. It's not a problem of, of belief. 
It's not a problem of your knowledge of who God is. It's not a sin issue. There's not, you look at your life and you say, what is going on, God? I'm praying, and it's just not happening. What do you do when God seems uncooperative? I want to look at the life of the Apostle Paul today. The Apostle Paul. The word apostle, um, just for you know, a side note, apostle does not, it's not his name. It's not, you know, like, it's more of a title. Apostle literally means sent one. So when you hear about an apostle, it was the ones who were directly sent by Jesus, those who had contact with him. So an apostle is someone who has incredible authority, okay? So the apostle Paul, we're going to look at three different thoughts about prayer, about this idea of when God seems uncooperative, and how can we pray, and what can we know about prayer. We're going to look at Paul's life And I think Paul has um, just as much reason as anyone to be able to speak about this topic. But here's the first thing. If you're taking notes today, write this down. If you're taking notes, and I encourage you to grab one of our notebooks out at the Connection Center. They're $5. It allows you to take notes every week and keep the message that God speaks to your heart in one place. The first thing to remember about prayer today when God doesn't seem, when God seems uncooperative is this. Number one, true prayer is not about getting our way but about surrendering our will. True prayer is not about getting our way, but it is about surrendering our will. We see this from Jesus twice. The first situation that I want to talk about is when Jesus is about to go to the cross. He's in the garden of Gethsemane, and he's kneeling down, and he's praying to his Father, and in this moment of humanity, It's not like this is a surprise to Jesus, right? He knew exactly what was coming his way. He knew why he was here. And the scriptures tell us that Jesus is laying on the ground or kneeling on the ground and praying so much in so much anguish that he actually began to bleed from his forehead. This is incredible. He was in such mental stress that the veins in his head began to break and he actually, you know, like blood was coming from his forehead in that kind of stress. And he's praying to his father, is there any other way? Is there any other way? I know what's about to come. He, maybe he could even hear the footsteps of the men who were coming into the garden to get him. And he's praying, gee, Father, is there any other way for this? I don't want to have to do this. And then what does he say? He says, but not my will, but yours be done. In a moment of incredible anguish, he, he summoned the strength and will to do what his father's will was. In a moment like that. The second occasion, which came earlier in his ministry, is very common to most of us. It's the Lord's Prayer. How many of you have ever heard the Lord's Prayer? I would pretty much say everybody in this room has probably heard the Lord's Prayer. What's one of the key elements of it? Not your will be done, or not my will, but yours be done, right? On earth as it is in heaven. So we see when Jesus is praying, when he teaches us to pray, and when he models it in his own life, that it's not about what I want. It's about submitting to what God wants and what he is trying to do. This is incredibly important for us to understand as a baseline for prayer. And if anybody, if anybody had reason to deserve to have their answer, their prayers be answered, I would say that the Apostle Paul was one of those guys who has a really good reason for it. The reason for this is this, is that the man wrote half of the New Testament. God used him powerfully. God used him mightily. He... He would uh, pray for people, and they would be healed. 
He would, uh, he actually raised the dead a couple of times. This is insane. Um, he, he had such insight that he wrote half of the New Testament. He saw visions and was able to speak into the lives of other people. He traveled over a 20-year period of time. He took the gospel to Europe for the first time ever. He started churches, and he paid the price for the gospel. He was imprisoned. He was shipwrecked. He was stoned. He was left for dead five times. Sorry, he was whipped five times. He was stoned. He was left for dead. There was one time where they thought he was actually so dead that he was completely dead, but he was actually mostly dead, like we said last week with the princess bride, not quite the same as Lazarus, but they actually dragged him out of the city and were able to get him back on his feet. Many times, this man paid the price for his faith. So if anyone had reason to believe that his prayers would be answered, I would think Paul would be one of those guys. But we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that there was something that was happening in Paul's life that he prayed for, but he didn't get the answer that he wanted. And so now years later, Paul is talking about and reflecting on it. I want to read this passage of Scripture so we can see what happens here. But I want you to understand, number one, true prayer is not about getting our way, but surrendering our will. Let's read this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. Therefore... In order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Now, this is a very challenging text because it's hard to read. It, is, it, it brings up all sorts of questions. Here's what it appears to be what was happening. So a messenger of Satan brings something into Paul's life that was meant to harm him or to cause him difficulty. Not only that, but God allows it. And not only does God allow it, God actually uses it to keep him from becoming conceited. And he calls it a thorn in his side. Now, for ages, people have been arguing or debating over what the nature of this thorn in Paul's side was. No one really knows what it is except for Paul and God and whatever that thorn was. Now, the Greek word for thorn in this case is the word skolops. And skolops is translated as a stake. Stake. Now, not literally, so we're not, we're not saying that he had a stake driven into his side, but it's to imply the agony and the pain that was associated with whatever it was that was causing him torment. Okay, it wasn't just uncomfortability, it wasn't like an annoyance, it wasn't a tickle, it was a complete agonizing, tormenting issue, as if someone had driven a stake into his side. So here's some of the ideas that people have oftentimes thought of. Maybe it was something physical that he struggled with. Perhaps Paul struggled with migraines, agonizing migraines. Perhaps he uh, received a disease like malaria. Perhaps he had a speech impediment. Or perhaps he had problem with his sight. We know that, that in his older age, he was a hard, not able to see. There, was, there, there are moments where we see in Scripture where Paul says that he had to write, and he says, look at my really large letters that I'm writing with. This is my own handwriting. Perhaps he had 
uh, problems with his sight. Other people think that maybe he had opposition. Perhaps the thorn in his side was a person, an individual who so opposed him that constantly, every step of Paul's ministry, that someone was there to laugh at him or to make him feel as though he was inferior or someone who constantly was undermining his authority or his ability to, to minister the gospel. Other people wonder if maybe it was a temptation. Paul, at one point in the book of Romans, talks about how he was so frustrated with himself that he was not able to do the things that he wanted to do, and he was constantly doing the things that he hated, the things that he knew were sinful, destructive in his life. We don't know what the thorn was in Paul's side, but we do know that he was agonizing for him, that he begged God to remove it. And for some of you, maybe you have something like a thorn in your side. Perhaps it's arthritis or headaches. Maybe you're battling depression or sleep issues. Perhaps it's an addiction. Maybe it's reliable transportation. There's something in your life that you're saying, this has got to change. I can't deal with this. This is tormenting to me. You have to remember, prayer isn't just about getting our way It's about surrendering your will and choosing to trust God. Why would God allow something so difficult, so problematic, so painful? Why would he allow it to happen? I don't know, but the last two weeks that we've been studying passages of Scripture, what do we see? We have to trust God's purpose, that God is good, that we cannot view God through the lens of our circumstances. God is either good or he's not. We can't choose because I'm going through something hard to decide all of a sudden that he's not a good God. We have to choose to view the Lord through our circumstances, through the lens of who God is. And we have to see from Jesus' point of view, from Scripture's point of view, that God is working things in us that might actually be painful for us. Prayer is not just about getting our way. It's about surrendering our will and choosing to trust him. The second thing that I see from this passage we're going to continue reading is that prayer reminds us that we are not in control And it keeps us close to the one who is. Prayer reminds us that we are not in control. And it keeps us close to the one who is. Verse 8 continues in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul's talking more. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Three times he prayed and pleaded. Now, this is not like three times in one day. So it wasn't like a breakfast, I said, God, can you take this thorn away, lunch, dinner, and then he was done. No, this is implying three seasons of intense prayer. Moments where this was so difficult or agonizing that he spent time in prayer. And this was the focal point of his life. The focal point of his, of his prayer life is, God, please, take this away from me. Why are you allowing this? Take it. I know you're powerful. I know you can. I know you want to. I know that, that you should. The, all the things in Scripture, all the things that we say to ourselves, all of these things. I understand what Paul was going through. Three significant times of petition and intercession. You know, I've had personal moments of like the seasons of my life where things have been difficult, where I have not understood what was going on. And I've had these times of intentional seasons of prayer, where I have fasted, where I have prayed, where I've taken a retreat and time away, times where I've stopped eating lunch or dinners, and I've put myself into my bedroom, and I just read scriptures, and I just laid on my bed, and I just said, God, I don't know what you're doing. I have had these moments. That's what Paul is talking about when he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take this thorn away from me. For some of you, 
There are things that are going on in your life, and you feel like you have been taking these moments, these times. For some of you, you need to take these times. It is not simply enough for us to say, God, I know you know this, so just help me. There are times in our lives where we need to, where we need to buckle down, and we have to. There's a, an old saying, a traditional saying, where it says to grab onto the horns of the altar. We see this in old, the Old Testament. The altar that was set up in the temple, where, where, they would, where they would offer sacrifices to God, there were horns on the ends of it. And when there were times in Scripture when something was so serious, when it was so difficult, or when there was something so serious that was about to happen, the individual would come up to the front of the altar. They would kneel down and they would grab the horns of the altar. And what they they would say is, I will not leave the altar until my prayer was answered. So when someone says in like a traditional church environment, and they say, we need to grab the horns of the altar, what they're saying to you is that you need to get serious about the thing that is happening in your life that you are asking God for. You are calling up every ounce of strength that you have for this thing. That's what Paul was talking about, that he was pleading with God to take this away from him. Please, God, take this. I'm only asking you to do what I have seen you do in other people. And if I'm God, my answer is, of course. (laughs) Right? If I'm God, if you're God, snap of the fingers, done, no problem, right? But that's not what happens. But what does God say? 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, it continues, but God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I'm sorry, God, that's not what I wanted to hear. I must have heard you wrong. Hang up, dial again. I think there was some miscommunication here. You're a good God. I have faith. I've been serving you. I'm an American, so I don't believe that you would ever do anything that caused me pain. Can you repeat the last transmission, God? Yes, Paul. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. We're praying, God, would you heal me? God, would you change my circumstances? Would you fix my problem? Would you relieve my pain? I mean, I could serve you so much better if you would just take care of this thing. That's what Paul was thinking. Whatever this thing is in his side, if it would just go away, my focus would be better. I'd pay attention more. I'd have more time to be able to take care of the ministry that you have for me. God says, no, my grace is sufficient. What is grace? What is grace? Is it the forgiveness of sins? That's part of it. But grace is so much more than forgiveness. We like to use the word grace because it's beautiful. It's wonderful. Grace is something given to us that we don't deserve, right? So the forgiveness of sins, like thankfulness, this goodness, this relationship that we have with Jesus. But grace is so much more than that. Did you know? That the word grace is actually used 155 times in the New Testament. 155 times. And it means undeserved favor, right? That's what grace means. The word is charis. 
Charis. The Greek word for grace is charis. Now, there was a scholar who gave this wonderful picture, a biblical scholar who gave this beautiful picture of what grace is. Not just forgiveness of sin, so when we receive grace, but here's what the grace really means. And I think it's going to give us a lot of insight into the idea of my grace is sufficient for you. This is what he said. Grace is God freely extending himself, leaning and reaching, leaning and reaching to us because he is disposed to bless and be near to us. I want to read that again. Grace means that God freely extends himself, leaning and reaching to us. Because he is disposed. Disposed means because he, that's his disposition. His posture is to lean towards us, to reach towards us, to love us, to give us this blessing and to be near to us. So in this case, we're saying, God, this is what I need. But in this passage of scripture, what we see is God replying to us, no, I'm what you need. But God, I, I need heal. But God, I need money. But God, I need this and I need that. And God is saying, no, I am what you need. Me, my presence. And for some of us, we're like, that's such a cliche. But listen, here's what God is saying. I could do that. I could. I have done that. I've done it in other people's lives. I've done some things in your lives. And I could and might do something similar for you later on. But right now, you're going to experience me in a way that you could not if I did for you what you wanted me to do. It's the leaning in, the reaching presence of God. My grace is sufficient for you. It's not a cliche because the literal presence of God does something to us that the answer of what we want could never completely accomplish. I can't explain it to you. I can't use words that can really explain it. I can only try to describe it. I can only experience it. It's a special grace, the presence of God. Recently, a few weeks ago, I took my son to the doctor to get his booster shots. The only way that I can try to explain this concept of the grace of God, the the leaning, reaching presence of God in a moment of, of difficulty, my son hates getting shots. He's terrified of them. My son is very brave, but in this moment, and it's been like this since he has been a little boy, he gets so afraid. As soon as the person walks in with the needles, he's shaking like a leaf. And he's sitting on the table, and he starts to cry. And you could see the look on his face. Dad, why are you making me do this? Why would you do this to me? Why are you allowing this to happen to me? The doctor's coming, getting the needles out, doing the thing, and wiping the swab on his arm. And he, you could see him bracing himself for complete uncomfortable feelings. And he's, he's terrified. And he's crying. And you know what I do? I walk up to him. And I grab his arms and his shoulders. And I look right into his eyes. And I whisper to him. I say, you're okay. Look at me. Just look at me. It's okay, son. I'm with you. I'm here. I promise you. It's going to be okay. It's all right. I have done this several times in our life. And my son, in the middle of it, you know, he's getting the poke in his arm and he starts to cry. And I'm looking at him, focusing on my eyes. Focus on me, son. Look at me. 
It's the only way I know how to experience this grace that, that God is speaking to Paul. Father, please remove this from me, this thing. It's terrible. It hurts. It's agonizing. And God looks at him and he says, my grace, I'm reaching, I'm leaning. Look at my eyes, hear my whisper. I'm with you. This moment right now, you will learn something about me and who I am and how I feel about you and what I can do and what I will do. It is more than what I could accomplish in this simple thing that seems so huge to you. I could do this. But for reasons that you may not ever understand, I want my grace to be enough for you. True prayer is not about getting our way, but surrendering our will. And prayer reminds us that we are not in control, and it keeps us close to the one who is. The third and final thing is this. Prayer isn't just asking, but trusting. Prayer is not just asking, it's trusting We're not just asking for what you want, but trusting that God knows what's best. Now, a side note, prayer is asking. Jesus specifically said, keep asking, keep knocking. So much is about praying unceasingly. We see that all throughout Scripture, Paul's own words. So we see Paul here, and we're going to finish his passage in a minute. But but the whole idea of prayer is to come to him, to learn from him, to bring to him what's on our heart. It is about asking. It's about not giving up. It's about, like we said this morning, in praying in the name of Jesus, declaring an authority that you know that as a child of God, you can speak things that God in his will will bring into existence if it's according to his plan. So we do have to be participants. We do have to ask. We do have to continue in faith. You cannot, none of us can say, well, God's going to do what he wants to do, so I'm just going to sit back on the ride. That's not the instruction. The instruction is to continue to ask, continue to believe. You cannot put the back door of your head that it might not work out. You have to start with a place of, I know that you will do what is right and what is best according to your plan, and I believe in this thing. And when the time, if and when the time comes, that it doesn't work the way that we envision it, we continue to trust. We must ask and trust at the same time. So here we are, Paul, years later, this is when he's writing this, years later, he is writing 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And he's looking back on his thorn in his side, and watch what he says. He's now describing his thorn as a good thing. Check this out, verses 9 and 10. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Boast about my weaknesses. That is why, for Christ's sake, this is crazy, I delight in weaknesses. I delight in insults. I delight in hardships. I delight in persecutions. I delight in difficulties. Why? For when I am weak, then I am strong. My goodness, this is a really hard, challenging passage of Scripture. 
I delight in the things that I would never choose. Why? Because I experience the presence and power of God in those things. That's what Paul has learned. It's not the successes that make me closer to God. It's those times when I can't do anything but look at him and trust in him and depend on him that helps me to know him in an intimate way. Did you guys catch that? It's not the good times. It's not the easy times. It's the times when things aren't going the right way, when I have no choice but to depend on him, that I experience him in a way that I never have before. And Paul has recognized this. So what if we changed our perspective? And I'm, as I was writing this this week, I thought to myself, I'm going to say this, and man, I am not fully there. I'm probably not even a little bit there. What if we said we delight in our headaches? What if we delight in our job search? What if we delight in our waiting season? What if we delight in the suffering that we are going through? What if we chose the perspective of I delight in my weakness because I know that now I will see the true colors of my God. I will see him in action. I will have a closeness with him that I can't find anywhere. What if we did because I know that they teach me to trust him, to trust that in the presence of God, I could feel him and experience him and see him changing me in a way that I could not experience otherwise. How do I delight in these things? How could we possibly delight in these things? There's a reason that Jesus is called Emmanuel because the name Emmanuel means God with us. Every other world religion involves trying to find a way around or ignoring our problems. And the reality of Christianity is that our God is with us in them, in the middle of it. In the middle of it. God with us. He is what I need in this moment. God, this is what I need. No. God says, no, I am what you need. There's this phrase that we hear all the time, time heals all wounds, right? We've heard this phrase, time heals all wounds. That's actually not true. Because time with a bitter wound becomes worse. But I would change it to say this, the time in the presence of God heals. And not only that, that our perspective changes over time in the presence of God. That's what happened to Paul. Paul, in the beginning of this whole moment, pleaded, fasted, prayed, begged God for relief from whatever it was that was causing him torment and agony. And now he's writing this letter to the people in the city of Corinth, telling them, listen, I'm telling you that God spoke to me. He changed my perspective and he showed me that If I had, if he had taken it away from me, I would not be able to see that in my weakness, God does things that that he wouldn't do otherwise. I am a new man. I can sit here now and write this letter to you saying that no matter what happens, I've been shipwrecked. I have been beaten. I've been flogged. I've been stoned. None of it matters because I have seen God do incredible things in my life and the life of those around me. That's a whole different perspective, guys. This is a foundational piece that we need to understand as followers of Jesus Christ. It's not about the situation right now, as hard as they are, as difficult as they are, as emotional and draining and exhausting as they are. 
But from an eternal perspective, from the perspective of the God who sees everything, not across just our 80-year timeline, but across all of eternity, he sees it and he says, I trust me, just trust me. Trust me. Our perspective changes over time in the presence of God. You know, we, uh, I'm gonna close with this. In the early years of our marriage, we made a lot of stupid decisions financially, my wife and I did. Debt collections. I'm terrified to pick up the phone. Every time the phone would ring, it was a number I didn't recognize. I thought, oh, it's someone calling, trying to get money from me because we didn't pay bills properly or so much debt. Felt like we didn't have anything. Felt like everything we wanted, we couldn't get. We felt like our life was ruled by some overlords who told us we didn't have credit. And so much of it was our own fault. We made a lot of bad decisions. And I remember praying, God, come on, I've learned my lesson. I have learned I'm not this way anymore. Please help me. Get me out of this trouble. Would you get me out of it? Like, like just approve this loan. I'll pay $600 a month for this little car. Whatever, you know. Begging God for an answer to prayer, begging him. And his answer was no. And some of it is because of my own consequences. And we have to realize that. The decisions that we make, we are not innocent of them. We must pay for the, the, the consequences, the ripple effects that happen sometimes because of our choices. But whether you find yourself in a space of a choice that you made or you were just experiencing the ripple of someone else and something that's going on in your life. In these moments, I remember years later talking to Heather, my wife, and saying to her, would you change it? If you could, would you change it? And her answer was no. No, I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't want to do it again. I would never choose it but I wouldn't change it. Why? Because of how God used it. There's so many pieces that God has taken and rebuilt, reoriented, and grew these beautiful branches of a tree now with flowers all over it that tell the story of how God repainted a picture, took something, repurposed it, made it new. And now one of those pieces, one of the small pieces is that I can sit down, my wife and I can sit down and counsel couples financially, help them with their budgets. My wife and I are in position to buy a house we never dreamed would ever be possible. And I'm not saying to you that we always get what we want because I'm still praying and there's a part of me that wonders, God, is it, is it not, is the answer no and I'm just trying to make it happen? But that's not the point. The point is I look back over something that I prayed and I said, God, you are so uncooperative. Sometimes you seem like a little jerk. Sometimes you seem so vindictive. Why would you make me suffer for so long in something I made a dumb mistake? My perspective has changed over time in the presence of God. And that's how Paul can look back and say, and say with confidence and in faith that he knew that the Lord spoke to him and said that his his power is made perfect in my weakness. So why would I not delight in it? And that's when you read the book of James. And James says in the very beginning of his chapter, he says, delight in troubles and trials when they come because you know that it does something inside of you. It changes you. 
no matter how bad it gets, the goodness of God is even better over time. So we continue to pray. We continue to ask for miracles. We continue believing. But more than that, we have to trust that God sees the whole picture. Prayer is not about getting our way. It's about surrendering our will. Prayer reminds us that we are not in control and keeps us close to the one who is. And prayer is not just about asking. It's about trusting. Just stand with me. Let's pray together as we close. Some of you right now have a thorn in your side. Something that's agonizingly difficult. I want to pray with you. I want to encourage you first to not give up. Continue to pray for your miracle. Continue to believe. Continue to trust. Continue to spend time in prayer. Continue to take those moments. Be intentional about the seasons of intentional prayer. Let's lean into the presence of God and believing that his leaning, reaching presence of God would touch us and then we would sense that God is here and that he is with us. So let's pray for that right now. In Jesus' name, Father, I, I pray that the miracles would come. I pray for physical healings and bodies. I pray for migraines and headaches and, and diseases and sicknesses to be gone in Jesus' name. I pray for finances to be restored. I pray for relationships to be mended. I pray for marriages to be healed. I pray for jobs. I pray for houses. I pray for schools. All of the things that, God, we're begging you for, we're believing for. We call up every ounce of faith that we have, and we say, we know you can. We believe you want to, and we ask that you will, and we believe that you will. But, God, we ask more than that for the perspective to see that you are good, that you are strong, that you are working. Help us to see how you are beginning to shift our perspective, our look at how we feel. Help us to see that you are doing things. Let us not feel alone. Let us sense your presence. Just like I did with my son, God, would you grab a hold of our shoulders, look into our eyes. Would you whisper in our ear, I am with you. Focus on me. Give us the right perspective in Jesus' name. Finally, for... Maybe there's someone in the room today who needs to know who Jesus is in the first place. You know, Paul originally thought that his efforts would save him. He used to think that he was this awesome guy. He thought everything that he was doing was going to save him, but he realized it was grace. He realized that the grace that God extended to him, the reaching in, leaning in, was the only thing that could truly save him. Grace came for me and saved me. I ran away as far as I could from God, but he reached for me. He kept bringing situations and people to me, grabbing and reaching a hold of me. And it is a gift of God. Some of you need that grace today. Some of you have, are far from God. Some of you are in a place where you, you, know, you maybe even thought you were a Christian, but you have never really come close to him and given your life and surrendered your life to him. And you're here today because you need to experience the grace of God. I want you to surrender your life to God today. And we're going to pray together. If that's you this morning and you want to surrender your life to Jesus, if you want to receive that grace in your life, 
to be made new in your spirit, in, your, in the deepest place of your being. All you have to do, the Bible says, it says to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. It just takes a declaration of faith. I believe in you. So all together as one church today, let's say this together. And if you want to begin this today, you just repeat these words after me. Let's all say this together. Heavenly Father, I need your grace. I ask Jesus to save me and be the Lord of my life. Fill me with your spirit so I can walk with you, so I can serve you, so I can know you. I am not first. I put you first. Change my life. My life is not my own. Today I give it to you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you made a prayer today to know Jesus for the first time or to recommit your life to him, I want to talk to you about this. It is the single greatest decision that you could ever make in your life. It will change everything in your life, I promise you. But it is not just a one-time transaction. It is something that you now walk in every day. And I wanna walk with you in that. We have free Bibles for you out at the, at the Connection Center and on the table right out of the doors. Please take a Bible. Begin to read that. But there's also these little books called Learning to Follow Jesus. It's a little seven-day guide to beginning your journey with Jesus. Take them and let someone know so that we can pray with you, so that we can talk to you, ask questions, and all those types of things so we can help you on that journey. We're inviting you into this journey of faith. We're ending a little bit later today, so we're just going to kind of go ahead and call it right here. But listen. We said a lot over the last three weeks, a lot. A lot of hard, challenging, I believe encouraging, foundational things. And so I'm sure there's a lot of questions, a lot of thoughts. I would love to talk to you. But I would encourage you, if anything, to join a life group. Because the life group is every week, we've got five of them all across the city where we talk about this stuff. How does this work in our lives? How can I make this real to me? How can I live this out? We have wonderful groups with people just like you. So if you're not in a group, I encourage you to ask questions at the Connection Center, our guest services team. would love to talk to you about a group and find one that's right for you. Come talk to me. We just want you to not feel like you're alone. It's not how it was meant to be. We're meant to live as a family. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you that even though we don't understand, even though when it feels like you don't make sense, when it seems like you're inattentive, when it seems like you're late, or when you're uncooperative, that we trust in who you are, that you have a purpose for our lives. I declare now in Jesus' name for miracles to take place, but even more than that, for your plan to be unfolded in our lives so that many people will know you, so that you will be glorified. Be with us as we leave this place. We trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. If you call Encounter Church Home or if you'd like to partner with us to support the work that God is doing here, you can take advantage of our online giving option. Just go to EncounterGiving.com. Also, stay up to date with us throughout the week by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at EncounterPGH. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.